over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We're going to jump into Joshua this morning, and I want to review it because reviewing, of course, is critical. We covered the Pentateuch, and if there's a takeaway I want you to uh, know about the Pentateuch, it's a corpus of literature, not five books. And so often we think of those Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as five books. There's a continuity that goes along with the Pentateuch. And the way we've walked through each one of them, Genesis, of course, the beginning of creation, Exodus, redemption from slavery, consecration for worship, Leviticus, holiness to the Lord. If he's taking you out of slavery, and that's not just physical, literal slavery, but spiritual slavery, now you've got to be consecrated in order to worship him the way he intended, the way he designed. Numbers then, the book everybody goes, Oi, you know, why, why should we read this book? And understanding the allotments and how God has ordered this thing for the Levitical priest. And then Deuteronomy, of course, being the second law giving, often called that. These are the names, continues the storyline. And as Christy has already cued you up, uh, this new chapter now of the story of Joshua. To think about it in a little different way, I want you to think about an outline of the Old Testament. We've gone from the Pentateuch now to what's often called historical books. Historical books are 12 of them. Let's say them together. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Uh, you don't have to admit if you did or didn't successfully memorize all the Old Testament books, but uh, this is a good repetition. Now, the Old Testament historical books are categorized in interesting ways. And you'll see I've put up here the theocratic books. Theocracy means God is king. God was established to be a king. Uh, interestingly, ironically, and a little bit uncomfortably, Islam is the only reigning religion in the world that is a theocracy. So we've got that versus Judaism and Christianity, a theocracy. During these three books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, we're going to get a taste of what God intended to be their king. Joshua's going to be an interesting story we'll look at in some detail today. Judges is the darkest chapter of Israel's history, and Ruth is a little tiny love story. And those three books are a beautiful pericope set of telling this bigger narrative what God is doing in spite of man's sinfulness. Even when they go to civil war with the tribes, even when the breakdown of the theocracy occurs, they don't want to worship God. You already know the theme of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the, the, it continues to de degrade through the storyline of Scripture. Ruth is the story in the days when the judges were judging. It's a beautiful love story about God's love for man about the kinsman redeemer, the Christ who comes to redeem his church, the Christ who comes to redeem his people. And so these theocratic books, God was to be the king. 
A monarch is what? A king. Some of you have watched The Crown. That's about the queen. The monarchy idea is there is a king who's appointed by heir, by right, by position. God did not want Israel to have a king. They complain and why? We want to be like other nations. What a terrible thing to say. We want to be like other nations. Don't be hard on them. We would have been the exact same way. Samuel, the first prophet, comes along and says, this is an evil thing you're asking. And there's great exchanges between Samuel and Yahweh Elohim about, you know, he finally says, give him a king. I'm going to show him what this is like. And we're going to pick a king, a head and shoulders taller than everybody. He looks like a king, walks like a king, quacks like a queen. We're going to get a king they can, work, they can work with. And, of course, right away, Saul's a miserable failure. David will come as the man for God's own heart. It will degrade down while we'll it divide a kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The way I remember that, I always comes before J. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The divided kingdom is a disaster. And again, the infighting happening between tribes and cultures and allotment during the time of the monarchy. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, different lenses. We'll look at them when we get there. Then finally, the restoration books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And they're much shorter than the books of the monarchy because they're covering less space and time. The monarchy is huge. So we've got three records, six technically, just like we have four gospels because of the importance of what happens with Messiah coming. We've got this long section of the, of the chronicle books, of the monarchy books, and Ezra and Nehemiah Esther are the restoration. So while the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, while all the infighting, the infrastructure, the failures of the monarchies, the evil kings, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over and over. Handful did well, most did evil. And at the end of the day, Ezra's the story of a rebuilding, Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding, and Esther is this strange outlier book that doesn't even mention God. So we'll have fun looking at those books. But that's, this now is historical. So we're moving from the Pentateuch, the corpus of literature that begins God's intention to bless Abraham, which literally means to offer salvation to the world. Regardless of tribe, tongue, race, color, creed, he's gonna offer salvation to his people through Abraham that will be a blessing to the entire world. And of course, sin is this constant cancer that never stops. That's the over, over high view. Let's look at the book of Joshua. The word Yahshua means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. It's a very simple term. And think about that just in the chronicle of the storyline. We're in trouble, we need Yahweh to save. And, of course, Joshua is a type, a prototype, a type of Christ to come. Donald Madvig explains this very well in a paragraph. Joshua deals with one very important stage in the fulfillment of God's great plan to provide salvation for the whole world. The people of Israel had to be settled in the promised land to prepare for the coming of another Joshua, Jesus Christ who was to live and die in the same land as uh, in that same land as savior not only of Israel but of the entire human race uh, when so many things strike you when you go to Israel and the, the size of the land always is a, a shock to people it's smaller than the state of Connecticut 
and we call it the Via Maris or the International Highway or the King's Highway. If you look at the Mediterranean Sea on this side, this little sliver of land over here, and then all the Middle East. It's so insignificant compared to the Middle Eastern people groups that in no small number, essentially 99% want to wipe Israel off the map and just move them into the ocean and take it over and turn it into the rest of the Middle East. This little sliver hangs on, and when, we, when people go there, we talk again and again about why. Why did God choose this people, this land, this place to bring Jesus Messiah? Why this little spot on the map? And when you see the geography of it and the geopolitical background, it makes incredible sense. And so this little sliver of land, Madvig is saying, God was providing salvation through this man named Joshua to go into the promised land. And that same insignificant piece of real estate, Jesus is going to come as the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate Savior. And people always ask, well, whose land is it? And if you study geopolitics today, there are Palestinian Christians, there are Jewish Christians, there are Arab Christians, there are Coptic Christians, there are all sorts of these people vying over the land. And, you know, I can tell you exactly whose land it is. It's God's land. It's God's land. And I think in his cosmic sense of humor and providential sovereignty, he lets it hang on on the edge of the ocean just as an illustration. I made a promise to Abraham about this land. And no matter who occupies it, it's my land. Where I put my name, that was the key. Where he was going to put his name. We go to Mount Moriah. If you look at the so-called temple complex today that Herod built, and you got the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Asq Mosque, and you look at this incredible building feat, and you stand there and you look back on it, and all the overbuilt city around it, and it's hard to strip away what it would have looked like in, in, in Abraham's time when he takes Isaac and puts a knife to his neck on Mount Moriah. The very spot that becomes the foundation stone for the temple complex that'll be the tabernacle in the wilderness that will come up with David, where his son Solomon will build the actual temple complex. And then all sorts of other processes will go on until Herod the Great comes and builds this enormous plateau. The Dome of the Rock established. Of course, any remnants of the temple are gone. And now we've got this, these two competing religions, large world religions, Islam and Christianity, saying, whose land is it? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Geopolitics are never going to stop. Not in this country, not even in Israel, not even when Netanyahu comes up for election. It's still geopolitical, and God is yet sovereign. But I love Madvig, Madvig's illustration, salvation through the promised land. Bo and Wilkerson would add Joshua forges a link between the Pentateuch and the remainder of Israel's history. Through three primary military campaigns involving more than 30 enemies, the people of Israel learn a crucial lesson under Joshua's capable leadership. Victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word. Nothing's new. Nothing is new. It's trusting God, faithfulness to his word, obedience, rather than military might or numerical superiority. Let's look at a snapshot of an outline, and I'm just going to give you two. There's endless numbers, but I like both of these for obvious reasons. The first one is two sections of 12 chapters. Seven years of conquest 
And then we've got the 12 final chapters looking at the allotment. So we're going to go in. It's going to be a battle. Christy references. When you go in the land, it's going to be a fight. If you do it my way, I'll be with you and you'll succeed. Bottom line. If you do it my way, I'll be with you and you'll succeed. It doesn't always work out that way because they don't always do it faithfully. And then we've got the allotment, which becomes the unraveling at the same time. They're just now getting established in the tribal allocations. And we go over there and we take people, and there's a reference point in Israel from the north. We say New York to LA. In Israel, it's from Dan to Beersheba. From Dan to Beersheba. That's the sort of the, the north and the south. We talk about the land. Old Testament refers to it many times that way. From Dan to Beersheba. So the allotment is going to be interesting. I don't like my land. I don't like this. I don't want to be on that side of the river. I want to be on this side of the river. Has anything changed? Have you ever, ever built a house? If you built a house, did it turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out? My wife often reminds me about the 80, 20, 90, 10 rule. She says, people say, oh, I, don't, I don't like this. I mean, I was her worst client for five years. That's a true story. I was her worst client for five years. And she goes, Michael, you're my worst client. You're so picky. You're that one client. I said, well, if we're going to do all this money. And he goes, no, no, you're never going to have what you want. It's 90, 10 at best. 80, 20, be happy. 20% you probably can't fix or live with. Get over it. Buck up. And those of you who built multiple homes will attest, if I ever built a home, next time, what I would do. Next time, what I would do. I wouldn't do that. That was a, I would do this again. That's the tribal allotment. I like their land better than mine. Dan is the classic example. Dan was given an allocation. They didn't like it. And when you go to tell Dan in the north, it's like living in, um, let's say, no disrespect, let's say the desert area of Arizona versus colorful Colorado with lakes and streams. Would you rather live in the desert or in the fresh water of Colorado? I'd prefer the fresh water. That's Tel Dan. Dan's a beautiful reserve compared to the allotment they were given. So the allotments go sideways from the very beginning. But Joshua is the story of the seven years of fighting and then the allocation of the property. Another way of looking at it, which comes from Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa's book, Talk Through the Bible, um, is the geographic outline. So it's a good way. First five chapters are the Jordan River. In and out. What are we going to do here? What's happening with the Jordan being this big crossing effect? The next six chapters, six roughly through seven, are in Canaan. Now we've moved into the promised land and the last section is looking at the 12 tribes on both sides. So it's a good way of thinking about the book. Two sections, we're gonna divide the land, allocation of property, we're gonna fight through it. Jordan River, Cana, both sides. Just as sort of a visual of where we're going. Let's think about Joshua the man. Um, he has an early, long, and front row education into the entire story of Israel. Uh, most people don't think about Joshua as a boy and who he becomes. He's born a slave in Egypt, which we tend to forget. Um, he would be one of the over 20 who survived. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The first time he's mentioned is Exodus chapter 17. And uh, Moses sends him into battle with a king named 
Amalek. And this is the fun battle. You remember this story because Moses is holding the staff, remember? And his arms are getting tired. And what do they do? First, they get a rock for him to sit on. Can you see the minions pushing this big boulder underneath Moses for him to sit down? It's kind of comical. And then Aaron and, who's the other guy? Her. Aaron and her hold up his hands. And when he gets tired, what happens? Joshua starts losing the battle. And they hold him up, and he's like, you imagine, you got to see some comedy in this. I mean, the poor guys, you know, if you've ever held something a long time, your arms, I don't care how strong you are, your arms get tired. And so you get a rock, which is an interesting metaphor, and then we're going to hold this arms up high. And we're already seeing the transition of Moses to the younger Joshua the first time he comes on the scene. Interesting. Joshua's fighting the battle, and Moses is leading by example, and others are supporting him. By Exodus chapter 24, the next time we find him, he's referred to as the servant of Moses. This is where I think it's so unfortunate we've lost vocabulary and word choice and meaning have been so destroyed in our culture. Words have become vilified and overly and politically correct and so forth and so on. You all are smart, you know this. But it's disappointing to me, the word servant take such a beating. In the Old Testament, every time you read the word servant or minister or priest, those are generally the same term or synonymous terms. To be a priest was one who ministered at the temple complex. And by the way, that ministry sometimes was labor, not how we view ministers today. Word usage, you have to look at how it's used to get meaning. He was a servant. He wasn't a, forgive the I'm probably getting trouble saying that. He wasn't a step and fetch it. He wasn't a doormat. He wasn't a subservient wife that waited on her husband. He was a servant to God's man, Moses, which was a high honor. And we always see him cloistered next to Moses. In Exodus 24, we find him up on the mount. Now, the mount referring to Moses is Mount Sinai. And he's going to go up to Mount Sinai to get the law. And there's a great scene where he goes with the elders to the base of the mountain. And the elders are told to remain below. But Joshua goes up with him. Now, there's no chapter and verse that explains the details of this. And I'm giving you Michael Easley's borderline pencil heresy here. I think Joshua is a stone's throw away from Moses when Moses is getting the tablets and the law of God. No, I can't prove it. I just don't see Joshua right there with him because we're not, the record says that he spoke to Moses like a man speaks face to face. So that's a theophany, Christophany. But Joshua, let me argue, he might have been an earshot. Maybe he overheard. We certainly know he overhears when he's near the tent. So we have this early, young, long front row education that Joshua has been getting as a servant of the Lord. By Exodus 33, 11, Joshua's called a young man. And again, <clears throat> these words are in time stamp. You have to look at them a little bit of detail. Probably in the Old Testament, a young man was 30 to 40. I like that idea of a young man. You're a young fella. My dad in his 80s, he'd say, oh, oh, he's an old guy. He's 60. Dad was, oh, he's a young fella. He's a young, anybody younger than him was a young fellow. I like that thinking. So Joshua was a young man. And Joshua chapter 33 of Exodus says, would not depart from the tent. 
He understood his role. So we get these little glimpses, born a slave, a servant, sent into battle at Sinai, and he's always there at the tent. Gives all sorts of great imagery of a person who understands his or her role. If we fast forward to the book of Numbers, and we talked about the failure of Kadesh Barnea, the 12 spies go out, 10 come back, wah, 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 wah. Joshua and Caleb, we can do this with the Lord's help. Joshua and Caleb are the survivors. The rest of them are going to die in the wilderness wandering experience. And so if we add that together, we had 40 years, 38 technically, because they've already been two years in trouble, 40 years total. We fast forward to Judges chapter 2. We learn that Joshua dies at 110 years of age. We don't know precisely how old he was when he's Moses' servant, but you got to do the math. You get 10-year bandwidth at most, 30s or 40s. He's a young man who is Moses' servant. Joshua is then going to become the leader after Moses dies. Let's think about some highlights that are probably familiar to you from the book of Joshua. Rahab. I intentionally left off the two words that always follow her name. It's funny how modern liberal scholarship works so hard to remove that label from Rahab. It's like Judas the betrayer. They don't worry about Judas the betrayer, but they don't like to use the two words that go with Rahab. What's more important to me about Rahab, whether her profession was what it probably was, what does she say to the spies? I've heard about this. I've heard about what your God has done. That's a 40-year-old story. Let that sink in for a minute. Here's a woman in Jericho, a godless city, part of the Canaanite culture. I heard a story about you all 40 years ago of how God brought your people out of Egypt. I think most people miss this about the woman. A 40-year-old rumor she believed. And when these spies show up, she accepts them entirely. She even hides them, one of the big... Ethical dilemmas a lot of people worry about. Did Rahab lie? The scarlet thread, the scarlet cord. Any of you old enough to have been in a church that had a whole thing on the scarlet cord, the scarlet thread that goes through Scripture? This is where it starts. She tied a scarlet cord. So it was like an identifier. It's like mark your luggage. All bags look alike. Put something on there that's obvious. So when the wall's breached, we don't harm the people in that house. We leave them alone. It's interesting, the broad walls, and I've been to Jericho when it was pretty easy to access. It's a little more complicated today. But um, years ago, we used to go into Jericho. And in what they do in antiquity, we've talked about a tell. So a tell, Tel Aviv, Dan, Tel Dan. So it's layers of, of, let's just call it occupations. Civilizations is too strong a word. So if a land goes in disrepair, people are dispersed, it, it falls apart. The building materials are still good because they're 99% stone. So you go in there and you reassemble them. You know what the best time stamp of archaeology is, even to this very day? A ancient solo cups. Clay pottery. Clay pottery was cheap and it broke. And everywhere you go in Megiddo and you go up to um, uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi, there's so much broken clay powder. I tell people, pick it up, pick it up. It's at least 1,000, not 2,000 years old. I've got to the point where I can narrow it between 1,000 and 2,000. 
That's how good I am. That piece is at least a thousand years old, maybe two thousand years old. They go, oh, oh, it's like, but it is. It's somewhere in that bandwidth. It's the trash of that time period when they. You ever seen when they dig these holes in landfills? They auger out like an eight-inch hole and they come down and they pull it up. And there's newspapers that you can pull apart and read the print because they haven't. There's no air and uh, moisture's gotten in there to decompose them. Plastic, of course, is our big nemesis. We can't. It doesn't degrade. Doesn't know. So they can tell so much about your and my trash. 20 years from now, when they dig a hole and they go, can we build a house on this landfill? Why not? Nothing's changed. Same thing happened with a tell. So a tell is abandoned, and then we build over it. It's abandoned, we build over it. It's abandoned. It's a great way to think about biblical history. It's a great way to think about the timestamps of Scripture. And so each of these layers, you go to Jordan, and there's a cave. They don't let I mean, maybe you can today, but in the last seven, eight years, they don't let tourists go down there. You have to pay some guy illegally, and they'll take you down, and it's ground zero. All that to say, the wall, the so-called broad wall of the tell of Jericho, what happens is you abandon the ancient site, and then you put another city over here called Jericho. And in Israel, they'll call them Old Jericho and New Jericho, or the real Jericho and the New Jericho. They do that all over the country because it's an archaeological gold mine. You don't want to mess it up, right? So Jericho, all that to say, if you go down in that particular tunnel, it's not, it's not you know, it wouldn't pass any OSHA. I mean, this, this is not like a ladder. This is a state park. You're taking life and limb in hand. And the guy that you pay 20 bucks to, he ain't going to care if you're down there. First time I went down there, I thought, what in the world am I doing? I might be buried right here in Jericho. Maybe I'll find a trumpet. I don't know. <laughs> but that broad wall would be large enough to build on. In Israel, the old town proper, we have what's called Hezekiah's broad wall, and you see how wide it is. And yeah, you could walk on it. You could take animals on it. That's how broad these walls were. Because the outside of the city's got to be big enough to sustain penetration which is the whole story. Nothing's changed. Well, crossing the Jordan, the ark of God is going to lead the way. In Exodus, we see many parallels, but one of the highlights is this is what's going to lead the story. The end of the 40-year journey, it was supposed to take how many days? 11 days. 11-day trip took 40 years. Can you imagine we're talking this morning about where we complain about jet lag. So you'd fly across, you know, the country. You go to Australia and New Zealand. God bless you. You know, we whine about jet lag. Mark Twain took him three months to get to Israel by boat. Think about that. And I'm sure it was a luxury liner that fed him and brought him champagne, right? Um, we're going to see the water cut off when the Ark of the Covenant comes and the priest's garment come to the edge of the water. It parallels the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to see the memorial stones established. And so the water is going to separate and 12 tribes are going to get 12 stones and they're going to build a 12 stone makeshift carom, we might call it, to commemorate. Even today, the Jordan River is high in the spring and low in the summer. And scripture confirms there'll be times you'll be able to see it and times you won't. You imagine some of you Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, explorers, whatever, you do these ritual things. Um, you know, some of us plant a tree, we buy a new house. 
Some of you, your kids, you put your hand in the little cement. Oh, cement things were real popular when our kids were young. A little thing had, you know, little pieces of glass and whatnot. And you scratch the kid's name and you, you put, you know, your son, daughter's hand. You push it down in there and you put it in the, in the yard. Some people mark uh, on the door the birthday and the name of your son or daughter. Cindy talks about how emotional people get. We're leaving behind. It's just a piece of trim with scratching. It's a memorial. It means something to you. Every house we buy, I plant a tree. It's amazing to go back and see how nice they look now. When I planted them, they were just little trees. There's some trees I planted in our house in Virginia that are magnificent. I go by, see, aren't, aren't those homeowners so thankful that I planted those so many years ago? I didn't get to enjoy them, but somebody else does. It's a memorial. When the water goes down, you take your kids over there and you tell them the story you see, this is where we failed in our country, Easley's opinion, on teaching history. We ain't got no memorials. I'd love to go up to D.C. and Virginia and go to 12 choice memorials and get talent, because I don't want to do it, get talent and do a biblical viewpoint of the Washington Memorial, Mount Vernon, Lincoln Memorial, and tell all the stories of the memorials with some great, you know, music underbedding it. And the last memorial is an empty tomb. A pile of rocks. Joshua, you put a pile of rocks there, the 12 tribes, and you, as part of a teaching, go down there and remind them when the water's down, you can't see them. This is where God let us cross. If you look at the map in the back of your Bible, there's a little town called Adam, A-D-M, A-D-A-M in your map probably. It's right by Jericho. That's where Israel crossed from the land into the promised land of Canaan. And that's also in pencil where I think Jesus got baptized within 100 yards. Because this spot right below fits all the descriptions of John out in the wilderness, of John baptizing before they went up to Jerusalem. It's not that big a piece of real estate. So you can take it either way you like. The first Passover will be celebrated in the land in a place called Gilgal. The same day, what happens? No more manna. 40 years of wandering, manna, 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 every day except Shabbat. The day they go into the promised land, no more manna. I don't think anybody was disappointed. They were glad to have some of the fruit of the land. Joshua will encounter this cryptic captain of the Lord's host. It's Joshua's encounter with Christ, Christophany, Theophany. Um, it will affirm the leadership transition. Moses was walking on Holy ground, the burning bush, the voice said, take off your sandals. Same thing happens to Joshua, take off your sandals. We, we use the expression, it's hard to follow in someone else's footprints, it's far to follow, you know, a big leader's, he's got big shoes, she's got big shoes to fill. Boy, talk about big sandals to fill. So Joshua's going to take that role and then, of course, the last one I'll point out, many more, we could, is conquering Jericho, just to name a few. Let me jump to some lessons because this is a lesson-rich overview. Number one, be strong and courageous. You know it already. In De Deuteronomy chapter 31, it's an interesting 
introduction to this phrase, it occurs three times. In Deuteronomy 31, when we hear, be strong and courageous, it's God has spoken to Moses, and he speaks to the sons of Israel. Then he speaks to Joshua in the hearing of the sons of Israel, and then he speaks to Joshua. It's a remarkable principle and transition. I want everybody to hear it. I want Joshua to hear it in front of everybody, and I want to tell Joshua one-on-one. It's cliche. Why do you tell someone to be strong and courageous? Because they feel weak and afraid. You don't tell someone who's strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. You tell someone who's weak and afraid. And this transition then moves seamlessly into the book of Joshua. It occurs five times in the book of Joshua, four times in the first chapter. And those audiences are equally interesting of who's hearing be strong and have courage. Be strong and do not be dismayed. In chapter 1025, at the end of Joshua's story, it is Joshua who tells the warriors who go out to battle, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies whom you fight. The transition and affirmation of leadership. Here's a guy that's been at the tent. He was the servant. He was with an earshot. He never left his side. He went into Amalek and fought the battle. Now it's transitioned. Moses, God talked to Moses. God gave Moses the Pentateuch. And you're going to be the next guy? How would you like to follow him? And the affirmation God gives to Joshua is so important and so significant. And Joshua, be strong. Be courageous. And for the most part, he is. For the most part, he is remarkable. And then finally, he transitions that leadership to his warriors who are going to go out and do the real fighting. Secondly, the living God is among you. The living God is among you. Joshua 3.10. When they crossed the Jordan, the priests are carrying the ark, and the water's cut off. And I don't know. Do you think the, the guys were doing it? Do you think they understood the ramifications? Did they go back to what happened at the Red Sea? Did they remember that? Did it make an impression on them? I don't know. But as I often have argued, don't ask God merely for a miracle. Ask him for an immovable faith. Because if you get a miracle, then your faith is contingent upon the next one. He did it before. Why won't he do it again? Boy, I love miracles. I love miracles. I'd love miracles for every one of us. But human nature is what it is. We need another one. Cancer comes back. We lose another person we love. We want another miracle. So anyway, they're standing on the edge of the water, and the water heaps up and stops. Had to be pretty cool. Had to be pretty astonishing. And all the regalia that went along with, we're going to carry the ark the right way. And there's all kinds of stories in the Old Testament, and you see the places in Israel where they didn't do this so well. The living God's among you. He's not a dead God on paper. Western Christianity has a problem with this. We either over-spiritualize everything and turn every little thing into God this, God that, God told me, God showed me, and we over, overdo it. 
and there's danger in either extreme, or we become functional deists where we say black and white print. The difference is black and white print is authoritative. Experience is just that, experiential. I don't want to be a functional deist, nor do you. What, what are the one or two times we can always talk about where we can say, God, he worked in that experience. When somebody comes to Christ and they tell their testimony and we hear this crazy wonky story about how they came to Jesus. I, I saw a flower tortilla and it had a picture of Jesus on it and I walked the aisle and prayed a prayer and I now own a flower tortilla company. I mean, I don't know, right? We hear these stories. What do you, what do, you do with that? What do you do with that? I don't know. The stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. Most of us didn't have a tortilla. I had a friend write an article to me one time about, you know, they were lonely and a cardinal flew and landed on the porch chair as they were having their devotional, looking out, and Jesus came to them in the form of a cardinal. And I bite my tongue till it bleeds. I go, no, a bird flew by. Next thing. I mean, come on. I can become a functional deist. I can also become an over-spiritualized mystic. And this is another area that West, Western thinking, we're so, we don't, we don't pay attention to what we pay attention to. We're so organized in the way we look at things through our presuppositions. What I want to tell you, he's among you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Does he tell you things outside of scripture? I'm going to say more than likely No. He's going to show you what Scripture means. He's going to apply Scripture where before it was a book or a story you may or may not have believed, and now you go, I begin to understand. Umberto Cassuto, who wrote the best commentary on the book of Genesis, an Italian rabbi, believes the whole story is myth. There's an unequal Hebrew scholarship on the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis written by a guy that didn't believe it unequaled rabbinic scholarship and it was myth intelligence is not a Christian make knowledge is not a believer make somewhere in this tension is to understand the moment you walked out prayed the prayer whatever it was you did the Holy Spirit indwelt you the problem we have with western mindset is either deism or over mysticism this isn't balance this is Use the Holy Spirit in the sense that let him control you as you spend time here. What do I said forever? God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. That's the safety net. Is it a guarantee? No. But it's a safety net that will keep you from becoming a functional deist or an over-spiritualized mystic. Third, God's promises never fail. Joshua 21, 45, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. Wow. That stops me in my tracks as I read through the book of Joshua again and again and again. Not one. Do they come at the time we want them? Because he's the sovereign. He's the providential one, not us. But they don't fail. Fourth, follow God's word. Don't turn left or right. That's Joshua's final address. It's a great chapter, uh, chapter 24. 
Don't turn left, don't turn right. Keep following, keep following, keep following. There's a lot of left and right distractions in life. There's so many left and right distractions in life. That looks really pretty over there. That looks really cool over there. Um, 1 John 2.15 basically says the same thing. Be in the world, not of the world. You've heard me before. I'll say it again. To me, it's the single most important challenge a believer in the West faces is are you in the world or of the world? We've got to be in it. We've got to have commerce, living, breathing, relationships, jobs. Are you of it? And I say over and over again, this world is not our home. We're otherworldly people. We're here for a while. It's a sojourn. It's a temporary residence. This life at best is a clean bus station. At best. And it's hard to keep that in perspective because just probably like you and I are the same. I like the horizontal. Not bashing anything. I'm just making a comment. Don't turn left or right. Stay on course. Six, uh, five, cling to the Lord your God. It's a very interesting word. Joshua uses it in chapter 23, verse 8. Keep close. In 2 Samuel, chapter 23, Eleazar, one of David's mighty men, he fought so long, his sword clung to his hand. I don't know if you're a brave heart for, you know, some of these guys, I watched something the other day, someone told me to watch, I'm not going to recommend it, but it was one of these kingdom, it was, it was the story after William Wallace, eh, Chris Pine was in it, I can't remember the name of it, but watching these guys battle with these claymore swords, I mean, these guys had to be the most strong, I mean, if you've ever been in a schoolyard fight, a fist fight with somebody, after about four or five or six swings, you're exhausted. You're a drilling dump. You're like, you can't even function. These guys fall all day with a sword. Interesting picture, clung to the sword. It's also the same word used in Genesis 2.24 about a husband and wife being joined together, glued, King James, cling. Hang on. What are you clinging on to? What are you clinging on to? Our stuff, our success, our knowledge base, our friends who can help us in time of need. Five, uh, six and last, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That's the final admonition. You be in holy terror, and I use that carefully, holy awe, holy respect. Look at him in an as an awesome God, and you serve him with your all. Be strong and courageous. To sum it up, means to obey God when it seems difficult. Do you obey God when it seems really difficult? Health, finances, marriage, kids, go down the line. Your future, your job, your career, your plans. You see, trusting God when it's easy isn't trust. Trusting God when all the props are knocked out. That's trust. And that, to me, is the lesson of the book of Joshua. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, 
produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.